Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to today's Commonwealth Club event. My name is Adam Lashinsky. I'm absolutely delighted to be back in person for the first time in three years. And welcome as well to our, uh, to our online audience. Uh, before I introduce our guests, I want to tell people in the room that I will be taking your questions. Uh, you will be rewarded for penmanship. <laughs> the clearer you write, the more likely it is that I'll choose your questions and, uh, and, and be able to read them. And I'm looking forward to your questions even more than mine. It is my pleasure to introduce Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Peter is the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times and a political analyst for MSNBC. Susan is a staff writer for The New Yorker and is global affairs analyst for CNN. And it is no secret that they are married to each other. True. And I'm going to ask about that. I think everyone is fascinated to know how that works. The club hosted Peter and Susan virtually for their previous book, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III, and is pleased to have them in person this time around for their latest book, which launched today and is number, it was number nine this morning on the Amazon bestsellers list. I don't know where it is right this moment. The book is The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. Peter and Susan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so Thank you much. Thank you guys for having us. I, I, I told Peter and Susan that I'm going to ask every question to the two of them and let them adjudicate how to answer. Um, they'll figure it out because they've figured out so much already <laughs> working together. Let me ask you um, to start. Uh, we, we all know and think we know so much about Donald Trump. Uh, what did you learn in re- researching and writing this book that you didn't know before you hmm. wrote and researched it? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, all the tough questions. All the right? tough questions. Go to <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, let me thank all of you for coming out in person and, and you, Adam. This is actually not only the launch day for the book, but our very first uh, official book event for The Divider. So we are delighted to be, to be sharing that day with you. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, this is not the first book that Peter and I have written together. Uh, and so our first book was about Vladimir Putin. Our second book was about Jim Baker, and our third subject is Donald Trump. So you can imagine, uh, you know, Jim Baker comes out pretty well <laughs> in, that, in that trifecta, right? Uh, you know, in a serious sense, Peter and I really felt strongly, especially, you know, sitting in our home in Washington, D.C., watching, as I'm sure the rest of you were watching on January 6, 2021, uh, and, and seeing the capital of the United States under attack by Americans, in bearing Trump flags and in the name of a president who refused to leave office peacefully, who wanted to overturn the election. And I know that we've all spent, you know, the good part of the last 18 months kind of hashing over those events, but I think I was really struck, especially going back and thinking about what did we learn, how to frame this, why do we do this book, The historian Michael Beschloss, uh, that very afternoon, made the observation, you know, that this moment was foreshadowed by every single minute of this presidency. Hmm. And I think that Peter and I felt there was a real urgency to establish as much of the historical record as possible and that you could really understand, uh, unfortunately, January 6th is this sort of violent but inexorable culmination of 
the four-year Trump presidency. And, you know, Peter and I have both uh, been in Washington for every presidency from Bill Clinton on down. We also wrote a book that covered the Reagan and Bush president, first Bush presidencies. And so I think we felt that to try to understand the disruption in the context of what is the real legacy to the presidency and you know, how can we reckon with this? We knew there was more to be learned. We conducted about 300 original interviews for this book, all of them after Trump left office, after his second impeachment, mm. in addition to trying to synthesize and analyze events and the record that was already existing. Mm. Uh, so, we, you know, people are going to be finding out new stuff about this presidency for decades to come. We're still writing books about Watergate and Nixon, right? Mm -hmm. But um, we felt that it was very important to have a one-volume, you know, first crack at history. So let me invite you to keep going, Uh, either of you. There's there's been a lot of, you know, uh, many of the nuggets in in your book uh, have been reported uh, for even people who haven't read them. So share with us something Something that was that was fresh and that either well either surprised you or confirmed what you thought going in. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, and I, I thank you guys again for having us. I, it, it, it's um, we learned a lot about events we thought we knew already, and discovered how much more there was, and we learned about events we didn't know anything about. One of the most I think important ones was I think Trump's war with zone generals. The idea that he wanted to use the military for what the generals perceived to be his political purposes. And the generals who believe the United States military is supposed to be an apolitical force, not an instrument of power for a politician fighting back. And most, uh, most uh, notably, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, who was so upset at what Trump was doing in his mind, that he wrote a resignation letter. Now, people reported at the time, we knew at the time there was a resignation letter that he had written and didn't submit. We found out after you know, Trump left office, we got a hold of this resignation letter for the first time, and it's a real doozy. I mean, it's a remarkable document in which he said that the number one military officer in the country accuses his commander-in-chief of not subscribing to the beliefs that stand, America stands for, of, of being against the values that America went to war in World War II for. He says, you are ruining the international order. He says, you are a destructive force to the country, and I can't serve you. Now, he doesn't end up submitting the resignation letter. What he ends up doing, telling his staff and telling the people around is, I'm going to stay, and I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight this president. Now, he doesn't mean disobey orders. You know, a lot of people in the military have discussed this. Where did Milley cross a line or not cross a line? In his mind, he wasn't disobeying legitimate legal orders. What he was trying to say is, I'm not going to let this military be used inappropriately, improperly as a political force. And and, and right up to the end, he was worried about that. And I think he was one of the most compelling figures in that presidency. So there's a lot of stories like that, I think, that were sort of known in general. And we managed, I think, bring a lot more to to the table. I read that letter. I, I read it in the New Yorker, right, in your excerpt. It's, it is an extraordinary letter. It's sort of shocking. It's the sort of thing that, that maybe you or, or, or I might think or write, but we aren't the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He wrote it. Um, Chosen by Trump. Yeah, and I, I do, just to echo that, I mean, Peter and I have both done, you know, s- three decades of reporting in Washington as well as reporting overseas from Moscow and other places. I would say that I never encountered uh, in in some ways reporting that was more kind of mind-blowing to me than uh, understanding the true nature and depth of the concerns of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and, by the way, the the other military chiefs as well. Uh, This was not partisan. This was not, you know, the stuff 
of cable news, right? Like this is like, these are really hardcore, serious people who believed that the president of the United States was the most serious threat to national security in a way at that moment in time. And I want to, let's stick with military for a while because you did so much reporting on it. What you're describing strikes me as one of several potential constitutional crises that could have happened but didn't. And I'm having trouble wrapping my head around that. It's not just once, it's many times. So can, let's start high level. Would you reflect on that? How close were we to a constitutional crisis during the Trump presidency? Yeah, it's so funny. In my bureau, <laughs> uh, my bureau chief, Elizabeth Bumiller, who was wonderful, had a sign on her desk that she put up when Trump took office. And it said, the country is, is not in a constitutional <laughs> crisis. And we would, like, we would debate about when we would flip it. You know, does this count as a constitutional crisis or not? I'm not sure that one's quite enough for a constitutional crisis. Today's a constitutional crisis. And you're right, because we pushed and tested the Constitution in ways for four years that we had never done before. Because President Trump came into office as the first president in our history without a day in public office or the military, not one day, he treated the presidency the way he did the Trump Organization, a family business with no shareholders, no board, no accountability other than what he himself wanted. And he believed the presidency was that. So he believed people ought to be able to take orders. If the military worked for him, he ought to do what he wanted. The Justice Department, if he wanted them to prosecute his enemies, doesn't matter if there's evidence, they should be doing that. If he wanted them to let his friends go who were committing crimes, they should do that too. We saw it again and again and again. And I think that that's what Susan was talking about, why January 6th is not an outlier. I mean, to understand January 6th, 2021, you have to understand January 20th, 2017, and every day in between, because it was all building to that moment. He was pushing, pushing, pushing every chance he got to see how far he could go until we got to the inexorable uh, conclusion. And what do you make of the fact that because you said something very interesting, which is that Milley and others tried to distinguish between disobeying orders on the one hand and I can't remember how you put it, but trying to do the right thing on the other hand. Yeah. They're yeah. trying to push back on right. what Correct. were bad orders or bad policy. Legal or legal, illegal. And I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to... I'm thinking of how we'll look at it 20 years from now. We, we didn't get there. It didn't happen. I think it didn't happen, if you know what I mean. And so why or how or what do you make of that? Well, a couple things. So first of all, there is this question still not fully defined about were we or weren't we in a constitutional crisis. To my way of thinking, that was a constitutional crisis, and actually we remain in it because we have a situation where the leader of one of our two political parties, uh, and Donald Trump definitely remains the de facto leader of one of our two political parties, has not accepted uh, you know, the constitutional norm of the transition of power and continues to defy, in fact, a lawful uh, constitutionally mandated process of transition and to make that a litmus test for one of the two parties. So in my view, we are in a constitutional crisis as a result of that, that we don't actually fully know how it ends. Uh, and related to that, it, as far as Trump and the military, you know, I think his testing of the boundaries throughout was a very interesting, essentially applying the Trump MO uh, that he might apply to a real estate deal or to any one of his business dealings before and laying that on to America's national security, the entire nuclear weapons uh, apparatus and, 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 and so on. Because what he was doing 
And what we heard in interviews with numerous senior officials, and I should say that was what was interesting to me too. Millie's account has gotten a lot of attention in, in our book and in others. But what I think our book does that the other books haven't done yet is to show that that was a through line. Donald Trump was testing the military and they were responding in a, a similar way almost from the very beginning of the presidency. Joe Dunford was the much more low-profile predecessor uh, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs to Milley. Trump pushed him out early, ahead of time, but Dunford had the same concerns. Uh, and that shows, again, that it was Trump looking for the weaknesses in the institution, but he would stop short of giving an order. So it wasn't like Donald Trump, it's not a legal order if Donald Trump is sitting in the Oval Office at the Resolute Desk and he says, you know, you effing generals, and by the way, that's literally like a quote that he used, you're all effing losers, I want to get out of Afghanistan right now. Those are all things he said again and again and again. You effing generals, you won't listen to me. I would like to withdraw all um, military dependence from Korea now. I'm sick of this. We're getting ripped off and I'd like to do it. So he said that not once, not twice, again and again. Is that an, an order, a lawful order? No, not under our system of government. It is Trump's wish. He's probing and probing. The generals might then push back and say, well, sir, Mr. President, uh, you know, if we withdraw all of the military dependence, this actually happened in January of 2018. And in some ways it was potentially as close as we came to setting in motion an actual war on the Korean Peninsula. Our national security leadership was completely worried about this because had Trump followed through and made it a legal order to withdraw all those dependents, that would have sent the message to Kim Jong-un in North Korea, yeah. we are about to attack you. And that could have led mm. to a real war. Mm. So, you know, I think it was really a crisis, not a crisis averted. And the interesting aspect about, if I'm hearing you correctly, your opinion is at various points he could have said, okay, I, we've, we've discussed this and I've decided we're pulling the dependence out of Korea, to use one example. And he didn't. Exactly. Yeah. Any insight into why not? Well, in part it's because some of the people around him slow walked him or tried to talk him out of things or, you know, found ways of, of circumventing him. You, you had a situation where you had, for instance, a national security advisor, John Bolton, who when, when Trump wanted to do something he thought was reckless or unwise, would find allies on Capitol Hill. He would go to Congress and say, can't you stop him? Or go to overseas allies and work with overseas allies to try to talk or, or maneuver Trump out of things. So people were trying constantly to find ways of influencing him. Uh, good example, we, we see the Queen's uh, funeral yesterday. Well, when Trump went to see the Queen, <laughs> he was very enamored of this. His mother was Scottish-born. Oh, my gosh, the Queen. This is validating for him. But his staff wanted to use that opportunity to see if they couldn't nudge him a little bit on climate change. Hmm. So his staff talked to Prince Charles or his people and asked Prince Charles, if then Prince Charles, now King Charles, if he wouldn't raise the issue with President Trump when they were there. And so he did. This is his own staff trying to influence Trump through other people because they figured he's more likely to listen to other people than he is to listen to us, <laughs> which is often the case. Although, by the way, in this yeah. case, right, <laughs> Trump comes back from his meeting or lunch or whatever it was with Prince Charles saying, oh, my God, all I did was talk about climate change. <laughs> so I didn't 100 percent get through. But that was what they were trying to do. Let me ask you one last question on the, on the military, and, and then we'll move on. What sense you're painting? It's interesting. I don't know if you use these words, but you're suggesting that Trump saw the military as yet another example of the deep state, these, these yeah, uh, career 
government officials who were who were against him. Yeah. Um, there's a conventional wisdom that the enlisted corps of the United States military is heavily conservative and heavily Trump, if not MAGA. Um, and you're suggesting that that's certainly not true for the for the, the, the flag officers. But what's your sense of that conventional wisdom and what do you make of it? Yeah, I think you've you've hit on something that's been very interesting, especially as the reports about the division between Trump and his generals have become public over the last year and a half. Uh, there's a great alarm, I would say, at the, the leadership level of the Pentagon that uh, it's a purposeful strategy at this point, in effect, by Trump and his allies, political allies, to separate uh, the generals uh, and divide them from the rank and file of the military and that, you know, that's part of why you see you can tune in to Tucker Carlson and he often is now doing segments on the woke generals uh, and criticizing the generals. Mm. And uh, it looks to many of them uh, with whom I've had conversations that this is almost a purposeful political campaign to, you know, of course, to tear down an institution that has enormous respect in American society at a time when many institutions, including, of course, the media, uh, do not. And, you know, one of the reasons we called the book The Divider was because this is absolutely Trump's playbook, whether it's uh, the military separate, dividing people, finding the fault lines and fissures in American society, even finding the fault lines and fissures within his own aides, his own family, and exploiting them. That is Trump's personal uh, M.O., it strikes me, as well as his political uh, M.O. T- tell everyone about your interviews with him, what set the <laughs> scene with telephone, in person, why did he do it, what was your reaction, as much as you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll, we'll we, be briefer than he was. Yeah, we'll be briefer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hopefully more truthful and factual. We, um, we, uh, look, I covered him for the Times for four years. Susan wrote about him for The New Yorker. I'd interviewed him a number of times in office, but we decided we would give a shot. Actually, they, he wanted to talk to us. He wanted to talk to authors, which is interesting because he knew it wasn't going to be you know, some sort of sycophantic book or anything like that. Uh, he also yet, knew, excuse me, that he probably wasn't going to read it, right? It, well, he would read parts of it, or people would read him parts of it. You know, in fact, when Chris Christie wrote his book, he sent it <laughs> to the White House with, with, with uh, stick-it notes on the pages he wanted Trump to read, which said nice things about Trump, ignoring the parts that said bad things about Trump and bad things about Jared. And, Trump, and it, it worked, by the way. Yeah. When, when we went and talked to Maggie Hayward and I went and talked to Trump, we said, what do you think of that Chris Christie book? He said, oh, it's great. He said nice things about me. He said, well, you know, it said really crappy things about Jared. Yeah, but it said nice things about me. You know? <laughs> that's true. So that's true. When, so we went to see him twice after he left office in Mar-a-Lago in 2021 for this book. Um, he was willing to see us. We give him credit for that, obviously. Anybody who's willing to give an interview, we want to take an interview um, and hear his point of view. But he's a, he's a hard interview because he's not a reliable fact witness right you can't somewhat there, understated you can't go there to write a history and try to get you know a factual account of an event that happened or whatever because it's going to be completely contradicted by everybody else in the room or he may maybe even contradicted by himself right so he contradicted himself between our first interview and our second interview the first interview we were asking about the vaccine for COVID, which should have been, in his mind, one of the biggest accomplishments he had, right? This is a pretty big deal, this vaccine, is early on after leaving office. And he had taken it himself, of course. And we said, are you going to do a public service announcement for that? He said, yeah, in fact, they've asked me, the Biden administration, they've asked me to do a public service announcement to talk to the people who are most resistant or concerned or skeptical, and that would be his people. 
So he said, you've got to do that. Okay, when we showed up again seven months later for our second interview, he said, well, how come you never did that public service announcement you said you were going to do? Oh, I never, nobody ever asked me to do that. <laughs> well, who, who told you that? You told us that. <laughs> you were our source. And that's the, that's the, 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 the challenge of trying to interview him. So the, as Susan likes to say, it's, it's, it's a random, rambling kind of conversation that always comes back to whatever it is he wants to talk about. And it's usually not an answer to any question you specifically ask. It's often not a... Or what does he say? A noun, a verb, and a period are not exactly in, in sequence there. So, um, but it is revealing at times of his mindset, right? What is he thinking about? He wants you to hear all about the stolen election, the rigged election. You can push back all you like and say, sir, you know that's not true. It doesn't matter. He's got to keep on going. Um, and it just uh, it, it doesn't matter to him in some ways whether you're listening or not. He just wants to talk. <laughs> I'm having trouble now remembering which figure of the many who commented about him, who commented on his intellect. It was it was Comey who who commented on his intellect Mm. or lack thereof. I think Comey said he thought he was intelligent. I'd like to know what you two think. (laughs) That's you (laughs) because you're alternating. (laughs) As I said, all the tough questions. Uh, You know what? Uh, it's hard to look inside someone's mind. What I would say that's, that's very striking uh, goes to this point about what Donald Trump knows, what he wanted to know, what he didn't know. Uh, what he didn't know would fill many books. And, uh, you know, he came to office not only uh, with a, without a single day of experience in government or the military, unlike any other president in American history, but it was his own staff uh, who uh, told us how shocked they were uh, when they started at the beginning of the administration in 2017 to understand actually just what that really meant. Uh, And uh, they're the ones who said, uh, there's an incredible quote in in the first chapter uh, from a senior official in the White House saying, you know, he knew nothing about most things. Uh, He did not, he confused the Baltics and the Balkans. Uh, And by the way, he did that in a meeting with the leaders of the Baltic countries. (laughs) He did not know that it is Congress that under our Constitution has the power to make war. Uh, he did not know that Finland was not a part of Russia. Uh, you know, and on and on and on the list goes. Uh, how much does it actually matter? Well, it actually matters a lot in the case of somebody whose supreme self-confidence uh, uh, meant that he did not actually care Right. Uh, You know, it's not like, well, I'm going to learn on the job. It said he didn't want to. He didn't. He wasn't interested in the facts, as we now, of course, all know all too clearly. And, you know, so what does it mean? I think Trump did have an an incredible uh, call it a survival uh, mechanism, uh, instincts about people. I do think that he he's very one of his gifts is to identify the weaknesses in others and to exploit them very skillfully. Uh, Many people have asked us, it's certainly a theme of the book, uh, the enablers who surrounded Donald Trump and why did the people work for him? Well, one of the things is that Donald Trump was expert at surrounding himself with people who were dependent upon him, Mm. who never would have had the job if it weren't for him, uh, you know, or who had some character flaws or weaknesses that made uh, them susceptible to remaining in his influence. And that, you know, I, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd characterize that as intelligence, but it's an extremely valuable skill, obviously. And there's no denying his political success, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I want to ask a sort of a, 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 an unusual or a warm and fuzzy question, but when we when journalists interview people, we we can't help but either like or dislike them. Sometimes, how did you feel about him? Well, we like you, <laughs> but that's dodging the question. Yeah, it's dodging the question. I know. I mean, look, and I like both of you. <laughs> I mean, it's not our job to like or dislike, obviously, and it's it's we try as hard as possible to try to remain as detached and neutral as as we can. Um, he has this interesting quality in person where he tries to charm you. He is, as Susan says, kind of a, when we saw him, kind of the cross between Napoleon and Elba and a banquet hall greeter, you know, would you like a Coke? Can I get you Diet Coke? How's it going? And in the middle of the first interview, which was conducted in the lobby of Mar-a-Lago, people kept coming by. Hey, how you doing? Uh, Rigged election, terrible election still. Hey, how's it going? Everything all right? Kimberly Guilfoyle at one point walks in and says, you're going to come to the event later, right? He says, oh, yeah, I'll definitely be there. And she walks away and says, what event? He says, I have no idea. <laughs> it's just he, he has this sort of, you know, and some people find it charming. They, they will tell you that they think he is charming. And I think it's partly because his public persona is so bombastic, so uh, harsh that when he is anything less than nasty to people in person, they find themselves like, oh my gosh, he didn't, you know, bite my head off. Well, that's, I, that would be my minor asterisk. I agree. Absolutely. Like that definitely was our experience. I think it's the use of the word charming that I found, uh, you know, I've heard that from many people over time. They would say versions of many journalists would say, well, we interviewed Trump and we found him to be more to in person. I think that's not the right word. Uh, and I think my word, I'm saying, yeah, no, I know. I, I, so I was a little surprised because I had heard many accounts, you know, where they say, well, in person, he's not there. So guess what guys? I mean, my take is that he's exactly in person what you think he's like. Okay. You know, like he's not at a rally. He's not like shouting hate speech at you. Okay. So, but with that caveat, like he's, it was like listening to a live action version of his Twitter feed, (laughs) uh, you know, including like random insults at random people, just thrown into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so we would just be asking about something and be like, Mitch McConnell is the stupidest person ever. You know, just like randomly thrown in. You know, and so it is true. Like he would offer, you know, would you like a Diet Coke? Or, um, you know, he then insisted that we uh, stay for dinner at Mar-a-Lago, which was a very interesting experience because he does, he's not inviting you to have dinner with him. And that is what I found to be fascinating and revealing about Trump, right? Like it goes to this point, you can't think of who is even his friends, right? Almost all presidents, including Richard Nixon, uh, right? You know, they had a friend or two, you know, B.B. Robozo or whatever. You can't name a friend, a personal friend of Donald Trump. So Donald Trump says, thank you for the interview after the first one. I'd like you to stay for dinner on the patio. Great. Then he says, I can get you a good table. You know, so there's a whole stick, right? So they take us to a table. It was a good table. It was a very nice table, but it's just me and Peter sitting there. And then he goes down and he performs at the charity cocktail event that Kimberly Guilfoyle, that he had no idea who it was, but he just, it's a show and he literally, he, um, there's like women in hula skirts doing a hula dance. Uh, and then after that show, he comes and he welcomes them and they clap then he comes upstairs and he makes a grand entrance on the Mar-a-Lago patio. And all of the paying customers uh, interrupt their dinners and they stand up and they applaud him every night. And it's like he's like waves at them as if it's a crowd of thousands. And then here's the very revealing part. He sits down by himself at dinner with the two young aides that he's brought with him 
from the White House. And he spends the whole time the table eating dinner. Been roped a off. red velvet rope, by as the way, as if someone's going to take it. And he, he just talks on the phone during the dinner with the two aides sitting there. And then when we leave, you know, he like puts the phone on hold and he smiles like this and he says, like, you know, did you have a good time? Did you have a good time? So <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's talk about a larger group of people than the, the hundreds or thousands cheering him at Mar-a-Lago, which is, and you know where I'm going with this, which is the 74 million yeah. people who voted for him mm-hmm. in November of 2020. They largely knew about his, his, most of what's in your book. They just didn't know the great details that, that you have in your book. And yet they voted for him. Um, what, do you make, what do you make of that? How should we think about them. Well, look, it's important to think about that because this is, this is our country and, and they feel very strongly, many of them, about him. They like him. They like his policies. They like, in some cases, they like his personality. Now, sometimes it's different, right? You hear from some people, look, I wish he didn't tweet so much or I, wasn't, I wish he wasn't kind of a jerk, but I like tax cuts or I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't like socialism and I'm, I'm against abortion or I'm, you know, whatever. Um, if you are uh, against abortion, he is the most successful president in the history of the country, right? He put three justices on the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade was overturned. Yep. Every other Republican president failed to accomplish what that part of the country wanted to accomplish. So he did. So some people, it's transactional. I don't like him, but he's doing what I think is right policy-wise. And then there are other people who, who couldn't care less about policy. It's not about economics or, or anything else. It's, it's sometimes, I mean, obviously, there's a racial element to this. In some cases, he has tapped into a great racial resentment and divide in this country and he has given liberty to people who responded to Obama's presidency with a sense of, you know, this great replacement theory and, oh my gosh, they're taking over, blah, blah, blah. He's played into that. And then there's a lot of other people who just like him because he's a fighter. He's fighting for us. We don't like them. Whoever them is, them might be racial. It might be the elites. It might be people on this stage. It might be the coasts. It might be whoever. I think as a metaphor, it's those fancy pants people who know the difference between the Balkans and the Balkans. It might be the Absolutely. people who know the difference between the Balkans and the Balkans. they're tired of being exactly. insulted for exactly. thinking that they should need to right. know that. And guys like Bush and McCain and Romney told them not to, you know, not to, 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 to fight in their view. And, and, and Trump is channeling yeah. whatever anger, grievance, and resentment that they have. Uh, will he run for president in 2024? And if the answer is no, when will we know? (laughs) (laughs) I think that we will know very soon after the midterm elections. Uh, I think that, you know, Mm. a year ago, Peter and I might have said, well, maybe not, you know, that he has a vested interest. He's sort of created a post-presidency business model, right, in raising money off of Mm -hmm. being a continued presence in politics and his grievance about 2020, he wants to remain relevant more than anything else, and that the second he says he's not running, of course, that goes away. Uh, even the spectacle that we saw at Mar-a-Lago you know, sort of influenced us. There was an element of pathos to it, as if he really was sort of a, you know, a kind of washed-up wannabe strongman. That was the vibe, I would say. However, you know, the last year has suggested a number of things that, that make it possibly more likely that he'll run. First of all, I think this sort of metastasizing investigations of Trump and his perception of legal jeopardy 
uh, possibly encourages him to run. Mm-hmm. I think that he believes that there would be a certain protection in being a presidential candidate. I think that sharing the stage or ceding the stage to a new generation of Republicans is infuriating to him. If you just look at his personality, uh, he wishes to be the all-consuming center of attention. Uh, you can already see the friction a little bit with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. A few times you've seen statements from Trump, well, I made him. Uh, he wouldn't have gotten elected without me, things like that. Uh, I think that he's not ready to cede the stage. Uh, there's the legal jeopardy issue. And uh, then there's the fact that he has uh, you know, done and said everything that a candidate for president would do and say. So I'm listening to you very carefully. And if I had a take, I would, my takeaway would be that you think he's going to run. I would not be surprised if he runs. And I do think that we'll know quite quickly. There is the, you know, possibility if Republicans were not to do uh, as well as they expected to do Mm. in the midterm elections, Mm. and there was a backlash and a blame Mm. on Trump for uh, basically pushing more extreme candidates, especially in the Senate races. uh, And uh, you could imagine a scenario where uh, that is possible. But But that would be a turnoff for him. Yeah. The bottom line, though, is that, you know, if you have been waiting again and again and again for the Republican Party for four years to make a jailbreak from Donald Trump, you know, they didn't do so after January 6th, the ultimate, uh, you know, get out of jail free card. (laughs) Uh, Instead, you know, they're they they doubled down to mix my metaphors hopelessly. Forgive me for that. Um, But yeah, Yeah. 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 delete. Um, you, you, you two are um, experts on, on, on Russia and Putin, having written a book, having been co-bureau uh, chiefs of, for, in Moscow for The Washington Post. So I'm going to ask you a question that could take up an entire hour, but don't please take, take up an entire <laughs> hour, which is, number one, share with us what – how do you analyze Trump's relationship with slash affection for Vladimir Putin, and uh, how do you handicap the next six months in Russia and Ukraine? Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'll do the second one first real quickly. Putin showed his hand. He wants to have a referendum now in Donetsk and Luhansk, the territories in the east that he already basically controlled even before the invasion. He wants to have a referendum on them ceding to Russia. So his hand now is, I think, take the small territories that he can, call it a day, say I won, mm. find a way to get out. That doesn't mean that that will end it. Mm. and he'll face pressure at home about that from the conservatives, the hardliners, who thinks he, he's, he's maybe messed this up. And Ukraine might not accept it because they're on the run right now, or they got him on the run right now. They yeah. got some momentum. Why would they accept uh, losing some territory? But I think that's where Putin seems to think he's heading. On Trump and Putin, it's, it's still the unanswered question, okay? You know, Robert Mueller says there was no criminal conspiracy between uh, Trump and the Russians. Fine. That doesn't mean that there weren't an extraordinary and still unexplained level of contacts between them and an extraordinary and still unexplained affection between Trump and Putin or Trump for Putin, I would say. In fact, it was so striking. We found this out that after that Helsinki meeting where Trump stands there next to Putin, says, basically, I believe him and not my intelligence agencies, Mm -hmm. that back in Washington, the intelligence chief, Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence appointed by Trump, Republican senator, Republican ambassador, was so agog at this that he told people at the time, he says, I don't know that, what does Putin have on him? That he himself thought the man who appointed him was somehow compromised by the Russians and didn't know any better. And he had access to information that the rest of us do not. And if he thought that was possible, 
that tells you something. Now, the other thing I would say, though, that we learned in the process of this book is it may have been a one-sided street, a one-sided direction. What's the phrase? It's a one-way street. street. One-way street. There is a meeting. We're having trouble with our metaphors today. (laughs) (laughs) Our metaphorical troubles. Putin is meeting with Trump at the sidelines of the Osaka summit, G20 summit, and Trump is being Trump, braggadocio, you know, Poland wants to name a fort after me, and Israel wants to name a settlement after me, and Putin very dryly and drolly says, well, maybe they should just name all of Israel after you, Donald, (laughs) right? Mocking his pretensions and his narcissism because Putin has his number. Putin gets him. Frankly, a lot of the foreign leaders did, but Putin wasn't sucking up to him. Yeah. He was mocking him. Mm. And that makes you think that this is a really one-way street. So a lot of people would tell you, Michael Cohen, his lawyer, would tell you it's about money. Mm. Russia was a source of money to him when he needed it. Some of his NSC staff would tell you it's just about this affinity for strongmen. It's not just Putin. It's all of them. And we'll never know because we don't have a reliable source to ever tell us, right? Well, he's not going to tell us. <laughs> That's what I meant. <laughs> one last question before I, I, I go to your questions. Uh, a, a little bit of um, journalistic inside baseball. Mm. Two things. One... Uh, what do you make of this criticism of the two of you for having withheld the juicy stuff mm-hmm. in your book and thereby denying your two employers that information? Mm-hmm. And, and secondly, um, explain the marital division of labor on writing, <laughs> on writing a book. <laughs> you want to do well, both of those? It's a- <laughs> Sorry, again, Susan. To- <laughs> you know, I, really, it's, it's okay. I'm not, you know, paranoid or anything. Um, you know what? This is not a tough question. Peter and I obviously are lucky to be able to work together. And I would say this, um, you know, we're still on speaking terms, so it worked out okay. Uh, it's not an easy thing to write a book, but, um, you know, we're, we're really lucky to have been able to, to work on three together. Uh, and each of them had its own, you know, challenges. But, um, you know, the day we, we wrote Kremlin Rising after our four-year tour in Moscow. And it, this is actually a true story, but we finished it the day that our son was born. <laughs> uh, the actual day that he was born. Uh, he was born early, I should say. So we weren't like late with our deadline. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so that was really, that was really a tough project, obviously. Um, you know, and actually the reason we're here is because today was the day that we had to bring our son to college. Uh, so it's also... Every, every book is somehow connected. There's some to timing, right? Uh, you know. <laughs> some big life event. Right. We tried to get the publisher to change the date, but uh, they very sensibly said, no, we're, we're locked in. So that's why we're here with you today. Yay. Uh, but, you know, Peter and I are, are super lucky to be able to do it together. But do you write every so, chapter together or do you do, you do alternate chapters? Or that? Right. Could you imagine sitting down and writing a 700-page book with the two of us sitting it's at the not 700 you know, computer? Pages. Don't say that right. <laughs> and it's not 700 pages. <laughs> that's just with the end notes. Okay. So, um, no, we have had different organizations for different books, but basically we essentially did what most collaborators would do. We came up with an outline. We divided it 50, 50 in terms of who would write the first draft and then who would, you know, edit it and write through it. Um, uh, so that's how we did it to your first question. Uh, you know, no, we did not save any, uh, juicy bits, uh, for this as you all, I'm sure know, uh, we, pretty much killed ourselves to do everything we could uh, during the four years of the Trump presidency. I can tell you, Peter Baker was writing stories for the New York Times, uh, you know, from the time we woke up in the morning. Often he would have written three stories for the New York Times before he was even able to get out of his pajamas. Uh, And, you know, he would still be writing stories, you know, long after I had, you know, fallen asleep in exhaustion because that was the Trump news cycle. 
We did this book because it's important for the historical record that we keep going back at it and find out more. And I think the fact that we have all this new reporting, uh, you know, speaks to the urgency of that project. And we totally recognize that there is a lot more still to be done. Mm. Uh, when we first found out about some of the information involving uh, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and his level of concern about a possible war with Iran. I wrote that in The New Yorker more than a year ago mm. uh, based on the the interviews we had done for this book because I found it to be such an alarming uh, disclosure, and I felt that it needed to become public at that time. Good. I, this is one of those things I'm convinced that the public could care less about, but <laughs> I'd, I'd be voted out of the fraternity for not asking you the thing that journalists care about. Okay, I'm going to race through a bunch of, of your questions in the room and online. Uh, the first is, did Trump having classified information at Mar-a-Lago surprise you at all? <laughs> well, we didn't see it when we were there, but... Um, <laughs> the file cabinets weren't yeah. open. Either. We should have asked because he might have showed it to us. Yep. He would have. No, he would have. <laughs> Now, his, his, he was always very cavalier about this. When, we were, when I interviewed him in the Oval Office during his presidency, he would just pull out stuff. You know, and say, ah, do you see? He was mostly interested in these love letters from Kim Jong-un. Did you see these love letters? And they're really very pro forma stuff. It's, he, the fact that he found them flattering was rather st- striking. But no, we didn't know that. Are we surprised by that? No, not yeah. surprised by that. Yeah. He, he sees everything as being his property. Uh, why do you think lots of Republicans, including James Baker, still support Donald Trump as president? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, Baker, who we wrote our last book about, uh, we were working on that book and writing it all through the rise of Donald Trump. And so, of course, it was a recurring theme in our conversation since in so many ways Trump stood uh, exactly opposite to everything that Baker and you know the Republican establishment uh, had stood for, uh, including uh, you know strong alliances and NATO and free trade and uh, uh, attention to uh, budget deficits and uh, a sort of personal rectitude as well. And Baker really did not like Donald Trump. He told us very openly he thought he was crazy. Uh, You know, he thought he was, you know, a terrible thing for the Republican Party. But it fascinated us that he could not, he would not disavow him in terms of the party. He said, you know, I'm a Republican. And in the end, that's where I'm going to stand. Mm. Uh, He was begged by, you know, many in his family uh, and who were close to him not to vote for Trump. He voted for him both in 2016 and in 2020, uh, while saying he didn't represent what he looked for. And I think, in a way, that was helpful to us in understanding the, uh, the, the partisan grip on uh, probably many millions of Republicans. There are a hardcore fan base for Donald Trump in the Republican Party. That's, I think, approximately about a third uh, of the country. Uh, but then, of course, there's a, a much higher number of Republicans who, for whom Trump maybe was not their personal uh, uh, cup of tea, but their partisan affiliation was so strong. Uh, a friend of mine in Washington calls this the anti-anti-Trump vote. Uh, and, you know, those are people basically for whom Democrats are so problematic mm. uh, or so concerning or so opposite to their core ideological beliefs that they're essentially willing to support any Republican, even one uh, they find distasteful. This question follows on that. Looking to the future, is there anything Trump could do 
to raise questions in the 50% of his supporters? Could his repeated threats of civic unrest, if he is charged with any crime, start a long breaking point? I think this is another way of asking is what, what might change those yeah. opinions? Well, look, he told us in 2016 that he could go out on Fifth Avenue, shoot somebody, and he wouldn't lose any support. And we, uh, we quote Lindsey Graham in this book. Lindsey Graham, of course, became one of his closest allies. He says, you know, he could kill 50 people on our side and it still wouldn't make a difference. And that's Lindsey Graham saying it. So, you know, we thought after January 6th, well, that has to be the moment. The, the Republicans were furious at him. You know, they really were. And yet what happened? He, they came back around to him. So he has a power that, uh, as Susan has put it, you know, has the, the party in its grip right now. Could that change? Yes, it could. But what it will be, I don't know. I mean, the truth is, the, his being searched by the FBI was seen as a political win. Sure. Because that meant that he was a victim, yeah. right? They're out to get him. They are political themselves. And so what will actually change people's minds? I don't know. There was an interesting number in the latest NBC poll that came out this week that asked Republicans, do you consider yourself more of a supporter of Donald Trump or more of a supporter of the Republican Party? And the number who said they're more of a supporter of Donald Trump was 33%, which is the lowest number since NBC had been asking that question in 2019. So maybe you, there may be a slow erosion, but as Susan says, you know, don't bet the house on it. Or it may reflect that he's off Twitter and the passage of time and, and yeah. what have you, the rise of Ron DeSantis. I think there's a fatigue among people who don't want to keep talking about 2020 forever who still like him, but mm-hmm. we'll see. Uh, a question from the audience. Are people generally eager to talk to you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, we're journalists, so no. Uh, but, um, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, we were able to conduct uh, around 300 original interviews for this, and uh, that included a wide array of, uh, you know, certainly bold-faced names that you would associate with the Trump administration, but also uh, people who would still be in pretty hardcore Trumpist territory. You know, I, I was interested in that. Now, I think many of them, you know, wanted to find out what what we were going to be reporting. You know, <laughs> I wouldn't say some of those interviews were like our most candid back and forth. Uh, but, you know, we did have a wide array of cooperation with figures from the Trump administration and the Trump White House uh, across what I would call the different faction lines and fissures, right? So there were certainly the kind of... Uh, internal resistance types. Uh, You know, there were the people, many, many people, of course, were fired and cycled through the Trump White House. Uh, But there were also people who were there with Trump till till the end. Uh, And to me, that's fascinating. I learned a lot more in doing this book. Also, I feel like I understand better the very complicated internal factional politics of the Trump administration. In just a few years' time, it was practically, you know, like the early Soviet Union with the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks and the, you know, I mean, there was a lot of different factions in that in that Trump um, world, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Um- so this is from uh, this is from online. Uh, how does this book attempt to unite Americans on different different sides of the political spectrum? How does the book try to unite Americans? Well, you know, look, we called the book the divider because he not because he invented this, but because he came along at a time in our history where we already were divided, and he figured out how to exploit that. 
And then he, he, it was a strategy for him. Other presidents have been divisive because it's the nature of politics, but they at least aspire to the idea that there was a responsibility, especially for those who were elected president, to bring us together at times, right? George H.W. Bush wanted a kinder, gentler nation. Bill Clinton said he was going to be a repairer of the breach. George W. Bush said he wanted to be a uniter, not a divider, sort of foreshadowing where we are today. Mm. Barack Obama said there's not a red America and a blue America, there's a United States of America. Now, all four of them didn't live up to those aspirations all the time, but they at least recognized that that was something we wanted to have as our ambition. Donald Trump never gave voice to any of that. He didn't think it was his job to bring us together. He didn't want to bring us together. So I don't know if our book brings us together. I think our book hopefully explains some of this to folks. And I think our book, to those who might be skeptical of it because they, they are very admiring of Donald Trump, to Susan's point, all of our sources of all the stories that they're hearing right now are Republicans mm-hmm. for the most part, right? They're almost all Republicans and they almost all work for Donald Trump at some point. Those are the people who were most concerned. So if, you, if you're skeptical of the book, fine, it's, that's fair. But, but this is a book built on the accounts of people who are in the room. Uh, to, the, to that previous conversation about people being eager or, or willing to talk to you, I, I wonder if it is actually no coincidence that you know, the, the head of all of this is somebody who leaked and talked to the press his entire life. And he, you know, took, you, you would get on the phone with Maggie Haberman and you, you, would, you, would, you always wanted to talk. And so maybe it's no surprise that the entire administration wanted to talk because he did. Well, there's something to be said there. I think that it was a, a group of people uh, led by uh, the former president himself that were extremely focused on appearances, on the media, for all of Trump's uh, characterization of the media as the enemies of the people and use of uh, the sort of um, dehumanizing language and you know attacks on the institution of the media, he was a uniquely media-focused mm-hmm. president who bashed the New York Times but really, really cared what the New York Times said about him. Uh, and I think that uh, spilled over to his aides. Trump, uh, you know... Uh, uh, hated CNN and yet couldn't stop himself from watching it. Uh, you know, and that I think was who he was. Uh, he once told, there's this extraordinary moment in the book where he was overheard by one of his, um, senior advisors once telling someone, not only the old New York adage, right? There's no such thing as uh, a bad publicity. He, he amended that. And Donald Trump's version of it was, there's no such thing as bad publicity as long as they don't call you a pedophile. Uh, you know, this man really <laughs> believed in talking to the press. <laughs> redefines a low bar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a, friend, a friendly question, I think, to your thesis. It seems Mark Meadows did a disservice to Trump by being an enabler instead of a real chief of staff. Hmm. Comment on that and share a little bit about your, what you learned about Mark Meadows and, and his role. It's a great question because Mark Meadows was a mystery to us when we started the book. Because we could not figure out where he was coming from because we'd heard a couple of different versions. One, he was on these phone calls with Mark Milley and, and others who wanted to land the plane. That's what they were called, these land the plane calls after the election. They were worried about something getting out of hand and they wanted to make sure that things were kept relatively stable. And he would tell people that he was trying to get Trump there. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. And then at the same time, he was texting with Jenny Thomas and these congressmen, these Freedom Caucus congressmen, and saying, yes, this is a battle for good and evil, and the Lord is on our side, and, and we have to you know, have fake electors, and we have to do all these things. So you know, to the extent that we thought for a while that he might be you know, 
he clearly tried to say what everybody wanted him to say. Whoever he was talking to, he tried to say what he thought they wanted to say. But in the end, if it was a question of was he really one of the land the plane guys trying to keep things calm, or was he somebody who was, as a Republican called him, the matador who was waving the flag saying, come on in. It turns out he was the matador. You know, the guys like who, who were saying, let's seize the voting machines and let's declare martial law and let's have fake electors and let's pressure the Justice Department into saying the things that they don't believe in order to overturn the free and fair election were given the ability to do that by the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. And so we had this great conundrum in our book in a lot of ways about these people who debate whether they should stay or not in this administration because mm-hmm. they just mm-hmm. can't stand it any longer. But they always tell themselves, well, it'll be worse if I'm not here. And in some cases, that's self-justifying, right? Gosh, if it wasn't for me, bad things would happen. But here's a situation where you could see where there would be difference. If John Kelly, who came to really loathe President Trump, had been the White House chief of staff at the end, he might not have been able to stop January 6th, but he would have thrown himself on the doorstop of the Oval Office to keep some of these characters out if he could have. And that's the difference. Uh, I love the next question because it shows that even in San Francisco, we are not all of one mind. Given Biden's recent Philadelphia speech where he called many Republicans semi-fascists, are you going to write a follow-up book on Biden as the, as the great divider? Hmm. <laughs> or the, 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 I'm sorry, the, the question is as the divider-in-chief. Divider-in-chief. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a great challenge uh, for journalists because we're uh, – used to operating in a system where we uh, essentially look on our political system as like we just have two political parties. And the bottom line is that uh, that has been changed pretty radically in the last few years. Uh, and it is our responsibility, uh, you know, to to hold up the politics in the country to a mirror. It's not to uh, create the reality that we want to create. That's hard to do many times. There's a lot of noise uh, but that is, in fact, our responsibility. It's not to say, well, these things are always equivalent, and that's the bottom line. And there is just, that's a false equivalence. Uh, you know, there's only one party in America today that is led by someone who has denied the legitimacy of an American election, who has called forth a violent mob of his supporters with a specific goal of obstructing the peaceful transition of power on January 6, 2021. That just, that's never happened in American history. Democrat, Republican, we've never had a president in American history who tried to overturn the legitimate results of an election. I think we're all still having a hard time in a way critics and uh, likers of Donald Trump together, we have a hard time processing that. It's never before happened in American history. That does not require uh, us as, as independent journalists to say, that calling out that behavior uh, is evidence of divisiveness. I mean, it just, I, it, it's not the same thing. Joe Biden's speech is not the same thing uh, as what Donald Trump has been doing to the country for four years. I really appreciate your use of the word equivalence. I think it's the most important word. There's a big difference between Hillary Clinton whining about the, the result of the election and Donald Trump for the very first time not attending his successor's inauguration. Correct. Well, and Hillary, Shocking. Hillary Clinton, and there's lots of criticizers about Hillary Clinton. That, that's fine. But she did call to concede. She did show up for his inauguration, by the way. President Obama didn't try to stay in office. He didn't talk to the military about what to do about it. He didn't ask the Justice Department to prosecute, uh, uh, you know, in order to stay in office. I mean, this, these, these are not equivalent. You can say that Hillary did or didn't do good things or bad things. You can criticize Barack Obama, Joe Biden. Fair enough. That's, and we write a lot of critical stories. That's our job. It is not the same thing. We shouldn't say it is. 
We have time for one last question. It, it, it's going to be mine. Uh, but before we go, reflect a little bit. The, one of the observations about your book is that it's, it's heavy in color and lighter on policy. What are your thoughts about, the, about Trump's policy successes and failures in his four years in office? Yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is that Donald Trump is light on policy. Uh, <laughs> and if you want to so write a book about his president, you know, if you want to write a book right, about Trump line. in the White House, uh, you good know, line. that's just, that's just the way it <laughs> that's is. Good right? No, that's good. I hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to agree. There's I'll, no, go ahead. I'll give, a, I'll give an anecdote though. We, we took, we took seriously yeah. his it's number one policy, domestic policy goal was tax cuts, right? Let's just, we, so we take it seriously, and we analyze it in the book, and we talk to, guess who, his top tax policy guy who told us, guess what, this had nothing to do with Donald Trump. That's an on-the-record quote. On-the-record quote from the guy whose job it was, who was brought in specifically to do tax cuts, and said, Donald Trump had nothing to do with this bill. It was all done on the Hill. It was all done by congressional Republicans. Trump just signed his name to it. The only thing he cared about was what to call it. And he wanted to call it the Cut, Cut, Cut Act because he thought that was good branding. Yeah. But that basically, he did nothing when it came to that. So as Susan says, he's light on policy. Even the thing he cared about. He really didn't spend any time on. And, and, and as long as we have a moment, just continue then. He, he had a foreign policy achievement as well, which was the Abraham Accords. Right. And, and talk about that. Also yeah. something really wasn't he, something he spent a lot of time on personally. I mean, now, give him credit. It was something happened on his watch, and presidents get credit for what happens on their watch. But the Abraham Accords, in which Israel established diplomatic relations with some, several Arab countries, uh, was an important breakthrough. But it was something that was happening already. And it was something that if anybody got credit, obviously, Jared Kushner was the one who was pushing it within his administration. And Trump showed up for the ceremony, which happily so. But even 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 without Kushner, I think this is already Susan will say this too, already starting to happen because there's reasons why the Israelis and these Arabs see common ground. Well, what an interesting conversation. Our thanks to Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, authors of The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021. Just a reminder that Peter and Susan's book is available for purchase here or at your local bookstore. If you would like to support the club's ongoing efforts in making virtual and in-person programs possible, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. Despite not having a gavel uh, to call this meeting to close, I am Adam Lashinsky. Thank you and take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.